You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. All you need is a few minutes to start your day off with something historic when you listen to the This Day in History podcast. Every day there's a new episode for you to listen and learn about what happened that day way back when. So listen and subscribe to This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. That's This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. Hello, everyone, and welcome to History of the Great War, episode 38. This week, a special thanks goes to Lisa for her donation. She says that she often listens to them during road trips with her husband, and all I can really say to that is that I'm glad I'm not putting you to sleep. Last week, we talked about the plans the French and British were making in May 1915 to go on the attack against the German forces on Vimy and Aubers ridges in what would come to be called the Second Battle of Artois. I highly suggest that if you didn't listen to episode 37, you go back and check it out, because this week we are jumping right into the action of the attack as we first check out the French efforts on May the 9th, before finding out how the British attacks fared. After we check in with the Brits, we will go back to Vimy Ridge to look at the further French attempts to make headway in their attacks. The French preparatory bombardment began at 5.30 on May the 3rd. It would go on for a little over six days, as the guns fired almost non-stop during that time. Joffre and the other French generals believed that this steady bombardment of the German lines would slowly wear it down, so that the infantry in the attack would easily be able to punch through. During this time, the guns slowly sought out German strongpoints that they ground down with their continuous fire. At 6 a.m. on May the 9th, just four hours before the attack, the tempo of the bombardment increased and over those four hours, it became more and more intense. While the intensity of the bombardment increased, the target of the attacks also changed. During these last few hours, the guns almost exclusively focused the barbed wire entanglements in front of the German trenches, and the first two lines of trenches occupied by the Germans. For several days, it had been raining, but on the morning of May the 9th, the rain stopped, and the weather became almost perfect for the attack. Clear skies and sunshine. At the very heart of the attack was the 33rd Corps, that was commanded by Patan. Yes, Patan again. I believe I've mentioned this the last time we were discussing French attacks, but Patan is one of those generals that will continue to pop up from time and time again as the war moves on. The 33rd made up the center of the French effort, and was, as such, in a very important position. 
Patan had arranged his divisions with the Moroccan division on his far left, the 77th division in the center, and the 70th on the left. To help the attackers along, two mines had been tunneled out into no man's land that would be detonated before the attack. There are several instances during the war of this tactic being successful, but unfortunately for the men of the 33rd, this would not be one of those cases. When the mines were detonated, it was realized that they weren't dug far enough out and pretty much harmlessly exploded between the trenches. Despite this problematic start, Patan's men would end up being some of the most successful of the entire attack. The French Foreign Legion led the attack of the Moroccan Division. The French Foreign Legion was, and I guess still is, made up of men from around the globe who had volunteered for service in France in 1915. They would lead the attack on Patan's right and would be able to capture Hill 140. When they arrived on the hill, it became apparent that the 156th Regiment had not been able to capture the crossroads of La Tege, which put the Legion in a situation where they were under a crippling amount of crossfire from the Germans. All that the Legion could do was hold on and make desperate appeals to the rear for reinforcements to be sent forward as soon as possible. Once again, the French found that their reinforcements were too far in the rear to make it up to the front lines in a timely manner, so they weren't able to move up to the Legion in time. In what must have been a horrifying moment for the Legion, they waited and they could actually see from the top of the hill that the Germans were actually massing for a counterattack. There are stories of the Germans even using the city buses of Lille to get men to the front line as soon as possible to launch the attack. The Legion could see these Germans, but could not do much about it. It was difficult to communicate back to the artillery, and the German artillery was constantly pouring fire on them. When the German attacks finally did come, they quickly drove the remaining men off of the hill. During the attack and subsequent defense, the Legion would lose almost 2,000 men, or 50% of its strength from before the attack. For their successful attack and their heroic defense, the 2nd Regiment de March of the Foreign Legion would be awarded the Croix de Guerre. The Croix de Guerre is the highest award that the country of France has for foreign military personnel. It can be awarded to individuals, or entire units in this case, that show great courage on the battlefield, and for the Legion it was a great honor, and it was also a pity that so few of them lived to see it. At the center of Patan's corps was the 77th Division, which began the day by trying to make its way up Vimy Ridge, in much the same paths as previous French attacks. Amazingly, the division actually made it to the top. They advanced for almost three miles into the German lines, taking the first, and then the second, and then the third German line. In just an hour, the French troops were finally, after months of fighting and thousands of lives, able to reach the top of the ridge and look on to the plain beyond. They had captured thousands of prisoners, a dozen pieces of artillery, and 50 machine guns. This was one of the most successful French attacks since the Marne. All they had to do was capture one more line of German trenches before they could attack the German artillery directly, and it was at this moment that the great problem of 1915 and the war reared its ugly head. Patan was frantically trying to push more troops into the gap to reinforce the leading elements of the attack. This was all the only way to keep the attack going, but once again Patan found the men from too far from the front. They were 8 kilometers behind the line, and try as they might, they were unable to reach the front in a timely manner. The ground was broken from the artillery preparation, there were wounded coming back from the front, and there were just a lot of troops trying to move along the same roads and walkways that were quickly overcrowded. 
Add to this the confusion of German artillery fire that was actively trying to keep them from reaching the front, and a bit of chaos is pretty understandable. Unfortunately for the leading French units, the Germans were able to mass troops faster than the French, and by the middle of the afternoon, they launched their counterattack. The French troops were quickly driven off the top of the ridge, and soon lost half of the gains they had made for the day. The 1.5 miles they had lost mattered just from a distance perspective, but more importantly, it pushed them off the top of the ridge. They also suffered horrible casualties in the retreat. In a world undone, G.J. Myers would say, quote, In the end, the early success of this attack led to losses so severe that it would have been better for the French if they had been checked at the beginning. End quote. While I'm sure the French generals at the time would point to the 1.5 miles gained as sufficient reward for the attack, overall, the attack was certainly not completely successful. Even with it only being partially successful, its partial success would be yet another feather in the cap of Patan, as his notoriety with the troops and with French leaders continued to grow seemingly by the day. It would grow even more when compared to the success, or complete lack thereof, of the other French attacks. On Patan's right, two corps, the 27th and the 20th, were attacking against Notre-Dame de Lorette and Ablain Saint-Nazaire. Notre-Dame de Lorette was a hill that would be an absolutely perfect location for the French. It had a great view of the lands beyond and would be priceless for any future attacks. To foreshadow a bit how important this location was, it is now the location of the largest French military cemetery in the world. This would not be the first with the previous First Battle of Artois, or the last with the Third Battle of Artois later in 1915, attempt by the French to take the location. Unfortunately, when the French troops started their attack, it very quickly became apparent that they would not share in the success of the 33rd Corps to their left. Along most of the front, the 27th and the 20th advanced less than 200 yards, barely enough to take the first line of trenches. The failures in this area came as a huge shock to Dirabal, who believed that it was here that the great chance of success lay. Most of the French strength was concentrated into these particular attacks. The bombardment had not been as effective on the front, though, and this meant that there were still extremely heavy machine gun fire from unbroken German strongpoints in the area that prevented any kind of large-scale advance. The 27th Corps wouldn't make any progress at all in their attacks on the 9th, even in the most successful of these attacks, such as the ones around Neuville by the 20th Corps, the troops usually arrived in such huge disorder and disarray that they couldn't continue any form of attack and were quickly assailed by German counterattacks. So just to recap, after the first day of attacks, it was only the 33rd Corps which had made any real progress, but the French commanders remained optimistic that further attacks would yield better results. Over the next several days, attacks would continue. However, by the end of the first day of attacks on the 9th, the Germans had, for the most part, recovered their composure after the initial shock. General Dierbal sent reinforcements to the 33rd and 20th Corps and ordered the commanders all along the front to continue the attacks again on the 11th. On the 11th, several more large-scale attacks were launched against the German positions, but they were all costly failures. The biggest problem for the French was that the Germans were able to quickly mass artillery behind the front faster than the French could, so they very rapidly found themselves in a situation where they were outgunned by the Germans all along the line. This put them at a massive disadvantage when trying to attack, 
and this disparity between the two groups of artillery only got worse as time went on, and more and more German guns arrived on the scene. On May the 12th, Durabal met with all of the corps commanders with the intent of ordering more attacks, but Patan straight up refused to order them. Patan insisted that several key villages be captured before he sent his entire corps into another attack. The villages in question were Ablain, Carancy, Suchet, and Neuville. Patan was able to carry the argument, and Durabal changed the focus of his next set of attacks to be focused on these four objectives instead of on a wide attack along the entire front. The 33rd would be tasked with the capture of Carancy and Suchet, while the 20th would be responsible for Neuville and Ablain. In these smaller-scale attacks, the French were actually mostly successful. On the 12th, Ablain was captured, and Carancy followed on the 14th. In the process of capturing Carancy, some of the Notre Dame de la Rette was also captured. Unfortunately, Suchet remained uncaptured despite the best efforts of Patan and his men. This meant that the Germans were able to continue to fire on the French troops from their position around the village. Even with the difficulties, Durabal was now fully bought into the idea that the capture of these four villages would mean that his larger attack would be able to continue. So after Patan's attack wound down, without Suchet in French hands, he went to Joffre to request more men. He found Joffre sympathetic, and two more divisions were sent to him, with more promised when they became available. So with this brief pause in the French attacks, let's head to the north to find out how the British did during their attack on May the 9th. Hello, this is Matt from the Explorers Podcast. I want to invite you to join me on the voyages and journeys of the most famous explorers in the history of the world. At the Explorers Podcast, we plunge into jungles and deserts, across mighty oceans and frigid ice caps, over and to the top of great mountains, and even into outer space. These are the thrilling and captivating stories of Magellan, Shackleton, Lewis and Clark, and so many other famous and not-so-famous adventurers from throughout history. So come give us a listen. We'd love to have you. Go to explorerspodcast.com or just look us up on your podcast app. That's the Explorers Podcast. Napoleon Bonaparte rose from obscurity to become the most powerful and significant figure in modern history. Over 200 years after his death, people are still debating his legacy. He was a man of contradictions, a tyrant and a reformer, a liberator and an oppressor, a revolutionary and a reactionary. His biography reads like a novel, and his influence is almost beyond measure. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast, and every month I delve into the turbulent life and times of one of the greatest characters in history, and explore the world that shaped him in all its glory and tragedy. It's a story of great battles and campaigns, political intrigue, and massive social and economic change, but it's also a story about people populated with remarkable characters. I hope you'll join me as I examine this fascinating era of history. Find The Age of Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts. As we discussed last episode, the French had asked the British to join them in the attack, and they had eventually agreed. 
They would be attacking to the north of the French with the objective of maybe taking Aubers Ridge, but more importantly with the objective of tying down possible German reinforcements. They would use a short, intense bombardment instead of the long, drawn-out affair that the French had used, mostly due to lack of ammunition at the front. The bombardment would begin at 5 a.m. on May the 9th, and would continue for just 40 minutes before the infantry went over the top, 5.40 a.m. The men who were participating in the attack were from Haig's 1st Army, and what they found when they moved into no man's land was that the bombardment had been almost completely ineffective. Instead of keeping the Germans off balance, the bombardment had merely alerted them to the oncoming attack without having the power to actually affect them in their trenches and strongpoints. This meant that when the British tried to continue the attack, they ran right into very well-prepared defensive networks manned by the Germans secure in their fortifications. The British formations were shredded. Let's look at the account of Lionel Sotheby of the Black Watch. Quote, the Black Watch, including myself, charged the German trenches 400 yards away. The whole 15 officers were killed except four. Of these four, three were wounded, and I survived. In places, machine guns wiped out men very rapidly. I was on the extreme right with my platoon, and we had no one attack on our left. Thus, we got crossfire. By the time I reached the German wire, I had only four or five men left with me, and we found the wire uncut. End quote. Sotheby was eventually able to find a gap in the wire, so that he and his men could come around and move forward, but by this point, there weren't even enough of them to continue the attacks. So he found some cover and waited. Quote, I waited there until 8 p.m., and then being a bit dark, I attempted to crawl back. It was rotten, and how the snipers missed me is wonderful. On returning, I found myself in charge of a company of 25 men instead of 200. I feel a changed person at present, and am unable to laugh, or smile, or anything, feeling almost in a dream." End quote. The second Black Watch, which Sotheby belonged to, suffered 500 casualties during the attack. Sotheby, in his account of the battle, goes on to say that he would like to get his hands on the Germans to give them a little payback. But unfortunately, he would be killed nearly four and a half months later, at the Battle of Luce on September 25th. With the failure of the first attacks, Haig ordered the attacks continued in the afternoon. The resulting attack at 4 p.m. would have much the same results as the first one. No result at all. During one day of fighting, the British had suffered between 9,000 and 11,000 casualties, and they ended the day back in their original trenches. It was from this battle that the following semi-famous quote comes from. General Rawlinson asked Brigadier General Oxley, quote, this is most unsatisfactory. Where are the Sherwood Foresters? Where are the East Lancashires on the right? End quote. To which Oxley replies, quote, They are lying out in no man's land, sir, and most of them will never stand again. End quote. This is probably one of those quotes that didn't exactly happen. It just has too much of a ring to it, which leads me to think that the words have probably been slightly altered to be a bit more memorable. But as they say, it's the thought that counts. The casualties were tragic. The lack of gains was horrible, but maybe the worst part of the whole ordeal for the British was that the Germans were even able to move troops down from the area to the south, where the French were attacking. Joffre and Foch could not fail to notice that the British had stopped attacking, and so they complained to Sir John French about the British inaction. 
In response to this message, three more divisions were moved into the area, and more attacks were launched over the course of several days. There were even more casualties during these follow-on attacks than what had happened during the initial day. So that's the story of the Battle of Auber's Ridge, which often gets reduced down to nothing more than a footnote in most large history books. Sometimes it will get turned into a small paragraph that is more of a framing device for the quote given above than for actual accounts of the battle. Also, that account of Lionel Sotheby is very popular. Of all the sources I used, his account shows up in all but one of them, so you could say he's somewhat famous. Even with the failure of the initial British attacks, the French weren't done yet. When the second round of British attacks got going, the French were doing much the same. Foch and Durabal met on May the 15th to discuss what they were going to do next in the offensive. They both agreed that another large effort should be mounted very soon, but the sticking point came back to the two villages of Neuville and Suchet. Foch wanted the next attack launched only after complete and thorough preparation, which included the capture of the two villages that had eluded the French on the previous days of attacking. Foch wanted the preliminary steps of whatever the next attack was to be the capture of these villages as a way to create a secure base of operations for further attacks. Both of the generals agreed they would mount smaller, more focused attacks against these two objectives over the coming weeks to slowly pry them out of German hands. On May the 20th, the first of these attacks was launched. The attack was able to slowly grind forward, thanks to the massive supporting artillery fire. On the left of the attack, Patain was able to push towards Suchet and Ablain, and Durabal urged him to just surround the villages and push the attack forward but Patain wanted to take them out fully before pushing further into German territory. To accomplish this task, Patain planned to concentrate all of the artillery available to him on the villages to grind the German defenders down. When I'm talking about these French bombardments and using words like massive, remember that by this time the Germans actually had more artillery than the French did in the area due to their ability to quickly concentrate it. So while the French were able to have some numerical superiority at specific points in the line, they were not able to gain a wide-scale advantage. The heaviest of the German artillery advantage fell on the troops to Patain's right, the 5th Infantry Division commanded by General Charles Mangren. For six days starting on May the 25th, the 5th Division slowly pushed forward under crippling German artillery fire, and then on June the 1st, Mangren launched two days of ferocious attacks against the town of Neuville which were not able to capture the town, and instead had to be halted, while more French artillery was brought in to support the attack. The next day, the attacks resumed with the new advantage in artillery, which focused on the German positions in the town. For three days, the fighting continued on the outskirts of Neuville, as the French constantly, but very slowly, moved forward. After these three days of fighting, the French were finally able to capture the main road through the town, but the German troops continued to harass them from cellars and piles of rubble, and this slowly sapped the strengths of the French units moving forward. It would take the troops until June the 9th, two full days of fighting, to fight through the town, moving from one rubble pile to the next. By the time the attacks were finally over, the French troops had lost 3,500 men, three and a half times the number of German casualties. When the fighting drug on day after day in Neuville, the main attack had to be constantly postponed, but it was finally scheduled to begin on June the 16th. This attack wouldn't be another small attack by a few divisions. Instead, it would be another attack involving all of the troops in the area, 
preceded by six days of artillery bombardment. Joffre gave the 10th Army more divisions to use in the attack, and again urged the commanders from Durabal on down how important it was to keep reserves as close to the front as possible to try and capitalize on the breakthrough. Durabal had 20 divisions for this attack, with some of them beat up from the previous fighting, but he also had more divisions in reserve. 1,500 pieces of artillery would support the men in the attack against the 12 German divisions facing them. During the six days of artillery fire, the French tried to obfuscate the purpose of the artillery barrages by constantly switching targets and not spending too long attacking one specific area. It was hoped that by doing this, the Germans wouldn't be able to exactly determine where the French attack would land, hopefully causing them to concentrate their strength in the wrong location. During the six days, the artillery fired something like 500,000 artillery rounds. That is, 83,000 rounds per day. That's about one shell per second, if my math is correct. Right before the artillery were scheduled to attack, all of the fire switched onto the German front lines. Durabal even delayed the attack a few extra hours, just to allow for more time to fire on the German front. The infantry attacked a bit after noon on June the 16th. And even with all of this preparation along the entire front, and so many troops committed, they made fewer gains than the much smaller attacks against Nouvelle the previous week. The French lost 19,000 more men on the 16th alone. Durabal ordered the commanders to keep attacking, day and night, with the greatest possible energy. But on the 18th, Joffre visited Foch's headquarters and didn't like what he was hearing about the situation. Joffre would order that the attack should only be continued in areas where progress was already being made. Less than 24 hours later, Foch would halt the attack. Even where gains were made during the attack, they often had to be abandoned due to the effect that they were too exposed to enemy fire once the attack stopped. Joffre officially ended the offensive on June the 25th. With the fighting over, both sides would now have time to reflect. The Second Battle of Artois, much like all of the actions in 1915, gets a lot of criticism from historians. The French lost around 100,000 men, the British a further 11,000, and the Germans around 50,000 in the attacks, but that doesn't tell the entire story. Much like in other battles, there were secondary French attacks to try and keep the Germans under pressure, which resulted in the Second Army losing 10,000 men, the Sixth losing 8,000, and the First Army losing around 16,000 in attacks that never gained more than a few hundred meters. This brought the total casualties for the attack to around 150,000 for the French. For all of these losses, they had gained about 3 kilometers at the point of maximum gains on Vimy Ridge. One of the biggest problems for the French was that Durabal, Foch, and Joffre were all convinced that they were so close to victory on May the 9th, so they just kept beating away, believing it was the next effort that would do it. What it really meant was that the first attack, while successful, alerted the defenders to the importance of moving more troops into the area, which would be positioned to stop the follow-on attacks. Each attack also required more artillery shells, and between May the 3rd and June the 19th, the French had fired 2 million of them. Other than the casualty figures, the biggest effect that the battle would have was the continued shaking of the French government's faith in Joffre which would continue the French down the road to relieving Joffre of his command later in the war. Some in the French government would slowly grow more bold in their criticism of the general, even though there was still no way to really challenge him directly due to his immense popularity in France. 
Second Artois would also cause a shift through most of the French high command, and Robert Cowley, in his book Perspectives on the Great War, would say this about it. Quote, According to Douglas Perch, the Second Battle of Artois started two large shifts in French strategy for the war. The first was that they began to believe that the best way to win was through perfectly choreographed battles that were dictated from a high level. The second was the slow shift in the high command from the belief in the possibility of a breakthrough and into the realization that it may take a slow, steady grind of German reserves to finally break through. To quote Perch, who is summarizing military historian Leonard V. Smith, quote, This strategic shift reflected a deeper psychological change that came over the French army as its soldiers became increasingly reluctant to sacrifice themselves for what they saw as unrealistic goals of their commanders. End quote, and I guess end quote again, because that was actually a quote inside of a quote. Anyway, for years, the French soldiers were sold, and sold hard on the offensive ideals, and now those ideals weren't working. And then they were told that they just needed one big attack to create a breakthrough that would end the war, and that wasn't happening either. If the French soldiers were at least beginning to question their commanders, it is almost certainly understandable. I think this quote may go too far in trying to tie the events of mid-1915 to the French mutinies that will come about in 1917, sort of that like, you know, revisionist 2020 hindsight sort of thing. But I'm not sure I'm qualified to argue with the three historians. With that, we will be leaving the Western Front for a bit, but when we come back, it will be just in time for the fall 1915 offensives, which will be the largest French attacks of 1915. One of them may well end up being called the Third Battle of Artois, so we'll give you exactly one guess what will be the objective of the attack. So next week, I will be releasing an episode that I've tentatively titled Life in the Trenches. Uh, it's basically just a collection of random topics that I've been trying to get into episodes for about a year now, and just haven't been able to, so I thought I would just make an episode strictly dedicated to them. So hopefully you will uh, tune in next week for that, and have a nice week.